Welcome to Hanchuk Targets History. I'm your host, Tim Hanchuk. Thanks for joining me this episode. You know, I've been teaching high school history for way too many years, and I love talking about this stuff. So let me share with you some interesting, unique, and little-known historical events. I know you'll be entertained, and if you're not careful, you just might learn something too. So, let's lock and load and take a shot at that target of history and see what we can hit. Let's take a walk down range and see what the target shows. Well, it looks like today we hit on the War of 1812. Specifically, we'll be talking about Oliver Hazard Perry and the Battle of Lake Erie. This battle took place on September 10th, 1813, and is sometimes also called the Battle of Putin Bay. Some people like to call this war America's Second War of Independence, although it seems that many people tend to forget it when talking about American conflicts. Maybe you learned about it in school, and maybe you learned about some of the well-known events, like the invasion of Washington, D.C., the Battle of New Orleans, or Fort McHenry and the Star-Spangled Banner. But I'm guessing that few of you learned about the Battle of Lake Erie. Even a number of people who live along its shores aren't completely sure how it played out. Let's remedy that right now. First, some background. What exactly caused the U.S. and British to go to war in the first place? The causes of the war go back to 1793. The French Revolution was going on, and that was the year Britain jumped into a war against them. The war against the revolutionary government turned into the Napoleonic Wars. And with the exception of a few brief lulls in the action, Britain remained at war with France until Napoleon was ultimately defeated in 1815. So when hostilities between Britain and France began, both sides tried to restrict other countries from trading with their enemy. This put the young United States in a rather uncomfortable position. They were not able to trade with either country without angering the other. In response to this, the U.S. Congress passed a series of non-importation acts and embargoes against both belligerents. The idea here was to force both Britain and France to feel the economic sting of losing access to American markets. Yeah, it didn't work at all. Neither Britain nor France were really affected, although these acts did cause the U.S. to sink into an economic depression. On top of this, the British were also doing some things that got the Americans all fired up. First of all, they rejected America's claim of neutrality. By doing this, they were basically dismissing the national legitimacy of the U.S. Ooh, how insulting. Secondly, the Royal Navy took to stopping American ships on the high seas and impressing American sailors. And by this, I don't mean dazzling them with how fabulous they were. The impressment I'm talking about was forcibly recruiting American sailors into the Royal Navy on the spot or you could say pressing them into service. I suppose today we'd call the practice kidnapping. Now to be fair, most British detested this practice, which was actually illegal under British law. But what was happening here was the claim was made that these Americans were actually British citizens, so thus they were being returned to the service of their native land. Yeah, trust me, it was a very tangled legal web. Furthermore, Britain was also arming the Native American tribes along the U.S. frontiers, causing a mess of trouble for settlers. 
Throughout the course of their war with France, Britain had issued 12 orders in council concerning restricting neutral trade and enforcing a naval blockade with France. An order of council is made by the sovereign at a meeting of the Privy Council by which the British government decrees policies. The one that really got the Americans upset was issued in 1807. This one ramped up the British blockade of French ports. It also required that all ships heading to France stop in British ports so they could be checked to make sure they weren't carrying any military supplies that would aid the French. Any ship that failed to check in at a British port could be seized by the Royal Navy. In response to the 1807 Order in Council, U.S. President, good old Tommy Jefferson, signed the Embargo Act, which closed all American ports to international trade. As before, a poor idea. All this act did was to again sink the American economy into a depression. Congress replaced this ineffective act in March of 1809, in the very last days of Jefferson's presidency. And speaking of presidents, the election of 1808 put James Madison in the White House, or I should say, the Executive Mansion, as it was called back then. He saw war with Britain as inevitable, and told Congress as much when he took office. The midterm elections of 1810 brought a number of young war hawks into Congress who advocated war. On June 1, 1812, President Madison gave a speech to Congress in which he reiterated America's grievances against Britain, but didn't specifically call for a declaration of war. That didn't matter. Shortly after the speech, both the House and the Senate quickly voted to declare war against Britain. This was the first time the young United States had made a declaration of war, and it was also the closest congressional vote for war in our history. On June 18th, the war formally began when Madison signed the Declaration. Now get this, while the U.S. Congress was busy declaring war, the British Parliament was busy repealing its trade restrictions on the U.S. Ironically, the American ship carrying the Declaration of War to Britain and the British ship carrying news of the repeal of the trade restrictions to the U.S., shall we say, passed in the night. Remember, it took ships weeks to cross the Atlantic. So when the British got the declaration of war, they decided to wait to see how the Americans would react to the repeal. And when the Americans learned of the repeal, they decided to wait to see how Britain would react to the declaration of war. <laughs> what a mix-up. Even though one of the major causes of the war had vanished, eh, fighting began anyway. Alright, now let's get to the Great Lakes. When the war began, the British immediately seized control of Lake Erie. They had two warships there already, the sloop Queen Charlotte and the brig General Hunter. They also had the schooner Lady Provost under construction at the time, and it entered service shortly afterwards. The only American warship on Lake Erie was the six-gun brig USS Adams. But not for long. That's because on August 16, 1812, American General William Hull surrendered Detroit to the British after a siege. And it just so happens that the Adams was anchored in the Detroit River. It was taken by the British, renamed the HMS Detroit, 
and added to their Lake Erie squadron. Of course, the Detroit service with the British was also short-lived. On October 8th of that year, U.S. forces found the Detroit along with the HMS Caledonia anchored off Fort Erie. An American force of about 100 men, led by Lieutenant Jesse Elliott, the commander on Lake Erie, crept in that night and seized both vessels. They sailed off in the early hours of October 9th and made for the safe harbor of Black Rock. At this time, Black Rock was a separate municipality from Buffalo, New York. Now it's one of its neighborhoods. The Americans got the Caledonia there safely, but the Detroit ran aground on the southern tip of Squaw Island. It came under fire from British shore artillery, and the British sent a force to try to retake the ship. Elliot and his crew drove off the attack, but Elliot knew that he couldn't hold off the British forever. So, in order to prevent the Detroit's recapture, he burned it. At Black Rock, the Caledonia was commissioned into the U.S. Navy and kept the same name, and joined three other warships already anchored there, the Summers, Ohio, and Trip. Unfortunately, the British held Fort Erie and nearby shore batteries whose fields of fire dominated the Niagara River. Hence, these American ships were safe, but kind of stuck in Black Rock for the time being. In the later part of 1812, Paul Hamilton, who was then Secretary of the Navy, met with Daniel Dobbins. Dobbins was a longtime mariner on the Great Lakes and had escaped capture when Detroit fell to the British. He recommended that the bay at Presque Isle off Erie, Pennsylvania, be made a naval base on the lake. Hamilton dispatched Dobbins to build four warships there, over the objections of Lieutenant Elliot. Elliot felt Presque Isle lacked the necessary facilities for a naval base, and also pointed out that there was a sandbar extending across the entrance to the harbor. This would make for some challenging maneuvering to get newly built warships out into open water. Elliot's objections were ignored. In September of 1812, Dobbins began felling trees to get the necessary timber for the ships, and construction began in November. On New Year's Day 1813, Commodore Isaac Chauncey, the overall commander of all U.S. naval forces on the Great Lakes, visited Presque Isle. He gave his approval of the four ships under construction and recommended Dobbins begin to stockpile materials for a larger vessel. Chauncey then returned to Lake Ontario where he would focus his efforts for most of the war. Also in January, the new Secretary of the Navy, William Jones, ordered the construction of two additional brigs at Presque Isle and sent an additional shipwright to help. Through the lobbying of Rhode Island's senior senator, Jeremiah Howell, Secretary Jones replaced Elliott as commander of the Lake Erie Squadron with Rhode Island native Master Commandant Oliver Hazard Perry. Now I know, some of you are thinking, Master Commandant? I thought Perry was a Commodore. Well, keep this in mind. During the War of 1812, Commodore was not a rank in the U.S. Navy. Instead, it was a title of an officer in command of a squadron of two or more ships. So when Perry took command of the Lake Erie Squadron, he became its Commodore. 
Lieutenant Elliot, became his second-in-command. Perry arrived at Presque Isle at the end of March 1813, and once he saw that his command was secure, moved on to Lake Ontario to meet up with Commodore Chauncey to get more sailors. While there, Perry took part in the Battle of Fort George by commanding the schooners and gunboats as part of the amphibious portion of the battle. From there, he went to Black Rock. Remember earlier, that's where some American vessels were bottled up? Well, the British abandoned Fort Erie at the end of May, which meant these ships were free to go. Perry had them towed up the Niagara River and then sailed them to Presque Isle. Meanwhile, what are those British up to at this point? Around this time, Commander Robert Barclay was appointed to command of the British Lake Erie Squadron. He reached Amherstburg, his base of operations, on June 10th, and immediately set out with the Queen Charlotte and Lady Provost. He did some recon work on the American base at Presque Isle to get an idea of its defenses. He then sailed the eastern end of Lake Erie, hoping to intercept the American ships coming from Black Rock. Hazy weather caused him to miss them. During July and August, Barclay got two smaller warships, the schooner Chippeway and the sloop Little Belt. He also urged his construction crews to speed up completion of the HMS Detroit. This was a new ship being named Detroit, not the one I mentioned before that was burned. His construction crews were good, but the problem was the shortage of supplies reaching him due to the Americans controlling Lake Ontario and the Niagara Peninsula. That meant his supplies had to come overland, a very slow way to transport things back then, and also made them susceptible to capture by the Americans. As a matter of fact, the 24-pound carronades meant for the Detroit fell into American hands as a result of the Battle of York. Barclay was forced to arm the Detroit with whatever guns he could scrounge from the defenses of Amherstburg. Now back to the Americans. By the middle of July, Perry's squadron was almost complete, but he awaited the arrival of more sailors. While he waited, Barclay and the British squadron blockaded Presque Isle from July 20th to the 29th. As I said earlier, the harbor at Presque Isle had a sandbar across its mouth with only five feet of water over it. This prevented Barclay from entering the harbor to attack the American ships, but of course, it also prevented the American ships from exiting the harbor in any kind of fighting order. Barclay had to end the blockade on the 29th because of low supplies. His hope was that when he returned, he'd catch the Americans in the process of crossing the sandbar, and thus they'd be in disarray and he could attack them. As soon as the British squadron sailed away, Perry immediately ordered his ships out to open water. The process to move the vessels across the sandbar was long, tedious, and thoroughly exhausting. The guns had to all be removed, and then the ship floated across if its draft was then shallow enough. If not, as in most of the larger ships, barges would have to be used. They'd be placed on either side of the ship, like to cradle it. Their ballast would be emptied, thus causing them to float a little higher in the water, and they'd float the large slip ship across the bar. When Barclay returned four days later, 
he found all of Perry's ships out into open water, except for the two largest brigs. Barclay saw this, but he also saw the smaller American ships had formed up into a strong battle line. He decided to withdraw and wait for the Detroit to be completed. While this was going on, Commodore Chauncey had dispatched Lieutenant Elliott with 130 sailors to head to Presque Isle. Among this group were 50 highly experienced men pulled from the legendary USS Constitution, Old Ironsides, which was tied up in Boston undergoing a refit. With the addition of these men, Perry sailed his squadron to Sandusky, where he got additional volunteers from Major General William Henry Harrison's Army of the Northwest. By the way, Harrison would go on to be President of the United States, although his tenure was the shortest ever. Anyway, back to the story. Perry made his squadron's presence known off Amherstburg, then anchored at Putten Bay, Ohio. This location of the American squadron, in essence, blockaded Amherstburg from supply by water. After five weeks, Amherstburg was running dangerously short of supplies. Remember, this was not just a naval base for the British, but an entire town, supporting civilians, army troops, and Indian allies. Barclay had no choice but to leave port and seek battle with Perry. Now, in the days leading up to all this, Perry had told his friend, Purser Samuel Hamilton, that he wanted to have a signal flag or battle flag for his ship to let the fleet know when to engage the enemy. Hamilton suggested that Perry use the dying words of his buddy, Captain James Lawrence, from the frigate USS Chesapeake. The words were, don't give up the ship. Perry loved this idea, and Hamilton had a flag sewn and presented it to Perry the day before the squadron sailed. That flag would become famous in naval history. So now it's the morning of September 10, 1813. The Americans could see Barclay's British squadron of six warships heading toward them and got underway from Putin Bay. <laughs> that rhymes. The opposing sides formed up in lines of battle with their heaviest ships near the center of the line. The HMS Detroit fired the first shot of the Battle of Lake Erie at about 11.45 a.m. Perry's plan was to get his two largest brigs, his flagship, the Lawrence, and the Niagara, in close to use their carronades, but light wind made them move slowly, and the Lawrence took a pounding from the Detroit's long guns for 20 minutes before coming into carronade range. So before we go any further, let me explain what's going on here. Long guns were the traditional naval and land cannons you've all seen in the movies. They were powerful, had a long range, but were expensive. Carronades were cheaper. They had a short barrel, so their range was limited. But up close, they packed quite a punch. The Detroit carried 16 long guns of varying weights, so they had quite a reach. The Lawrence and Niagara only carried two long guns each so they weren't going to be doing much damage with them. That's why they needed to close in to use their carronades. At 12.45, Perry on the Lawrence got within carronade range and commenced firing, though the initial broadside was not very effective. 
It seems the gunners had overloaded their carronades with shot. By the way, double or even treble shotting a long gun could be done, but that practice wouldn't work too well for a carronade. While the USS Lawrence was slugging it out with the HMS Detroit, and then the Queen Charlotte as well, Lieutenant Elliott on the USS Niagara stayed behind the Lawrence and was slow to enter the fray. This slowness to act was a point of contention between he and Perry for many years afterwards. So the battle raged, with the nine American ships and the six British ships going at it. Perry, aboard the Lawrence, however, was taking the heaviest fire. Before long, the ship was reduced to a little more than a floating hull, and a good four-fifths of the crew were either killed or wounded. When the Lawrence's last gun was put out of action, Perry decided to transfer his flag. He hopped into a ship's boat and was rowed to the Niagara, which was about half a mile away. This happened under blistering gunfire, and while he was doing this, the Lawrence surrendered. When this happened, there was a lull in the fighting. During the carnage, the Detroit had run into the Queen Charlotte, and their damaged rigging became entangled. On top of this, most of the officers on both ships were dead or wounded. Barclay himself suffered serious wounds, and his second-in-command was dead. Most of the smaller British ships were also damaged and starting to drift. Be that as it may, the British expected Perry on the Niagara to lead the American ships away in a retreat. Yeah, think again. Aboard the Niagara, Perry sent Elliot to bring the schooners into close action, and then took the Niagara toward the British ships. The Niagara broke the British line ahead of the Detroit and Queen Charlotte, crossing the deadly T and raking both their decks with devastating broadsides. The other American ships hit their stern, even though the crews of the Detroit and Queen Charlotte managed to untangle their ships, they had no fight left in them, and both struck their colors and surrendered at about 3 p.m. The other four British vessels tried to make a run for it, but were quickly overtaken and surrendered shortly afterwards. Although Perry had won the battle on the Niagara, he had himself taken back to the Lawrence to accept the British surrender there. That brought the battle to a close. All told, this was a tremendous American victory. All six British ships were captured, and ultimately no American ships were lost. The British suffered 41 killed and 94 wounded, out of a force of about 350. The Americans lost 27 killed and 96 wounded, although two of those would later perish from their wounds. The British commander Barclay did survive the battle, but he was a mess. He had already lost his left arm in combat a few years earlier, and this battle took his leg and rendered his right arm completely useless. Ouch. Late that afternoon, Perry's squadron and prizes were anchored off West Sister Island, undergoing hasty repairs, when Perry sent a message of the victory to General Harrison. On the back of an old envelope, he used a pencil to scribble the famous words, Dear General, we have met the enemy, and they are ours. Two ships, two brigs, one schooner, and one sloop. He also composed a longer message to Secretary of the Navy William Jones, 
telling him of the victory as well. So a great victory for Perry and the Americans. But what significance does it have in terms of the overall war? This victory gave the Americans control of Lake Erie for the rest of the war. That, of course, removed the threat of a British attack along its shores in Ohio, Pennsylvania, and western New York. It also forced the British to fall back from Detroit, which allowed American forces to again invade Upper Canada. And this led to the American victory at the Battle of the Thames on October 1813. So all in all, I guess you could say a pretty significant battle. To commemorate this victory, the Perry Monument within Perry's Victory and International Peace Memorial was built at Putten Bay with an impressive 352 foot tall column. I've seen it myself and it's really cool. So if you ever find yourself in Putten Bay, check it out. You can't miss it. There's also a 100 foot monument at the eastern end of Presque Isle in Erie, Pennsylvania, which is of course where Perry had his base. Now yes, there was still plenty of fighting to happen before the War of 1812 came to a victorious end for the Americans. But talking about those battles, well, that would be another story. And there you have it, kind listeners. Thank you for tuning in. You know, if you like this episode, please tell your friends and check out some of the other episodes as well. I look forward to talking with you again next week.